independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, so great to have you tune in to this episode of Green Dreamer. I wanted to let you know that I set up a Patreon goal that we're aiming to meet as soon as possible in order to keep the show going. So if you've listened to at least a few episodes, have learned from us and wish to continue doing so, and if you're not struggling financially, of course, or a new listener just checking the show out, please become a patron today starting at $2 per month so we can keep Green Dreamer podcast alive and open and accessible for everyone. To join us on Patreon, you can head to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much to our current and past supporters. If communities had too much power from their perspective, they would be saying, actually, I don't think, I think we've probably got enough Starbucks now. And actually, no, if you're going to build houses in our town, they need to be affordable homes and they need to be ecological homes. And actually, we don't want this and we want that. And, and, and growth-based capitalism doesn't really like communities and towns and cities who who have too much self-control or self whatever the word is you know self-determination that was rob hopkins a co-founder of transition town totness and transition network and the author of from what is to what if the power of just doing stuff the transition handbook and the transition companion I feel like conversations around sustainability are often doom and gloom and focused on the reality of the issues that we face today. And I never want to sugarcoat or diminish the seriousness of anything because that's never helpful. And if you tune into the show for a while, you know that we go deep and wide in covering the current societal health and ecological problems that we face. And at the same time, it's also important for us to intentionally exercise our imaginations and create visions for what we wish for the near and distant future to look like. And this is what our discussion will center on today, as Rob says, from what is to what if. We're also going to talk about what transition towns are and how around the globe, each one has been working towards decarbonization in their own unique, culturally and bioregionally appropriate ways. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. One of my earliest things was a punk record that I heard when I was 13 that was all about meat and had this fold-out sleeve that was all about the industrial meat industry, which turned me vegetarian at the age of 13, and I have been ever since. Uh, So I guess that was an early thing. I guess I grew up in the kind of age of nuclear 
potential bombs going off all over the place, which was quite a, a thing to grow up with. The potential of not knowing whether you'd wake up again in the morning. So that was a, a part of it. When I was in my early 20s, I traveled through Pakistan and went to the Hunza Valley, which is this extraordinary kind of resilient culture in this valley, one of the most amazing sustainable agricultures I'd ever seen. And that had a really powerful impact on me because it was the it was the first really sustainable land-based culture I'd ever visited. I don't know what else really. I suppose and I suppose then when I came back from traveling and somebody gave me a book about permaculture, that really fired my imagination up because for the first time I read a book that talked about earth repair and it completely transformed my sense of what an environmentalist could be, that it wasn't just about stopping the bad stuff, that you could actually set about putting it all back together again. And that was that was hugely impactful for me. Economic growth right now, as measured and defined by our governments, is dependent on extraction and energy consumption. So the more we extract and use up energy, the more the economy grows, because it has to grow off of something. But as you've said, the more reliant we are on oil consumption, the more vulnerable we really become. How do you think our societal vulnerabilities have been revealed through the disruptions caused by our current pandemic? And what should it teach us regarding how we should redefine and recalibrate our measurements of societal success? Well, I mean, Arundhati Roy did a sort of a teaching thing online a couple of weeks ago, which was brilliant. And she said that what COVID-19 has done is basically give a kind of an MRI scan of, of, of each of the places where it's been. And it has highlighted the systemic racism and the economic inequality in each of those places to a degree that's really chilling. You know, in, in, in the UK, BME people are four times more likely to die from COVID-19 than white people. And and there's a there's a class issue, there's an economic issue. The government here is now quite happy to send working class people back to work and keep middle class and higher earning people working from home. You know, it has shown that around where I live and in many other places, people who have been setting up organic or local food supply systems, connecting local farms to town, starting new food-based enterprises are, are flourishing. You know, the, the demand for local produce has gone through the roof. And as one of those people who has been pushing for years to say, we have to connect cities and towns with the land around them. We have to rebuild those local food webs. We have to use the anchor institutions, uh, the hospitals, the schools, the universities in those places to drive a new food system. Now that that argument, which before we would make on a kind of climate change ground, which didn't really appeal to everybody, I think actually now we can make that as a as a survival strategy almost. You know, the, the degree to which we put that kind of infrastructure in place in the places where we live is going to make the most enormous difference to the degree to which those places survive or not. So it, it's highlighted our food insecurity. It's highlighted the fact that we have an education system that hasn't prepared people really to not be in school, to how, how to entertain themselves, how to fill their time. But I think what it has also shown is that if you believed Hollywood movies, disaster movies, and if you believed 
people like Margaret Thatcher who said there is no such thing as society and that actually the only thing that matters is economic growth and communities are irrelevant. Actually, it's been communities and mutual support networks and communities organizing on a street by street, uh, area by area basis that is what has got a lot of people through this. The state has been pretty ineffectual and it's been community self-organization that has got people through this. So for me, the question is, when we have a crisis like this, governments say, oh, aren't communities wonderful? They're so great. But actually, when we're not in a crisis like this, communities are downvalued, not supported, seen as kind of irrelevant, told they don't exist. And actually, for me, coming out of this, we need to see, we need to build off the networks and mutual support networks communities have built to build a new economy building off this, rather than to see this as somehow disposable. So I guess the danger in believing these dominant narratives of what happens when crises and disaster hit, this distrust against one another, is that that can get in the way of us actually building community, which is what we need to get through these tough times. Yeah, Boris Johnson, in one of his first statements when this started, said with a slight tone of surprise in his voice, there is such a thing as society after all, to which mm. my response was, yeah, we all already knew that, <laughs> And the fact that you didn't know that says so much about how you have set about attempting to govern this country. Like for me, that I, I spend most of my time going and visiting communities who are doing amazing, visionary, bold, wonderful stuff. And they're, they're extraordinary. So I have absolute faith that communities can do astonishing, remarkable things because I, I see that day after day. And, you know, it's, it's an economic system that we have that – Communities are disposable, that the market is more important than the communities rather than the market being in service to the communities. So I, I so my hope is that we we emerge out of this and place a lot more value and importance on communities and also recognize that yes, communities can do extraordinary stuff and self-organize and mutually support each other in phenomenal ways. But actually, if as a government you supported those networks properly and resourced those networks properly the stuff that could come from doing that would just be unimaginable and extraordinary. And, and that feels like the next conversation to me. Is there a reason why you feel that those in power may be opposed to the idea of everyday people building stronger and more resilient localized communities for themselves and helping one another out? I think, I think we have, you know, we have developed an economic model where, communities and towns and cities are seen as you know we have an extractive economy which has no commitment to place it has no relationship to place or to people in a place quite often it goes to a place like if you're starbucks for example you you have very complicated metrics where you say okay this town has this particular demographic so therefore they would support five starbucks so uh, find us some properties, we'll open five Starbucks. You know, those Starbucks open, they don't have a connection to that place. They are just there to extract money from that local economy and funnel that money to head office and then often offshore. Uh, I don't know about Starbucks, but a lot of companies do that. So, so we have the, when we walk down our high streets and we see these familiar brands and sometimes we kind of feel quite comforted and we recognize them and that's all good. You know, we should be really seeing a lot of them as being like enormous leeches sitting on our high streets sort of sucking the blood of the economic blood of those places away somewhere else. 
But we know that if that when you have a high street with a predominance of local independent businesses, a lot more of that money stays in that community and circulates around and makes stuff happen and supports local families and helps people put kids through school and university and so on and so on. They they those are the people who turn out for the for the town events. They're the people who contribute, not the big chains. So for me, it's it's really about how do we at the moment we don't have a level playing field. So we need to be able to, as, as as people living in places, protect what we're doing. The problem at the moment is we don't have that. It's not a level playing field. Those companies come in and they buy, they can out-compete places. If communities had too much power from their perspective, they would be saying, actually, I don't think, I think we've probably got enough Starbucks now. And actually, no, if you're going to build houses in our town, they need to be affordable homes and they need to be ecological homes. And actually, we don't want this and we want that. And, and, and. Growth-based capitalism doesn't really like communities and towns and cities who who have too much self-control or self whatever the word is you know self-determination. That's seen as something profoundly kind of undesirable, I suspect. As part of your talks and workshops, and as exemplified by your book, from what is to what if, you often lead people through a time machine exercise to imagine the what if. So can you first explain briefly how our listener might be able to go through this exercise on their own and then transport us with you to your version of year 2030 when the UK where you live has fully achieved its target of decarbonization? What would a typical day for you look like there? Mm, great question. Yeah, I actually did this exercise today online with a conference in Austria and I've done it online. I've done it in groups of 10 or 15 people. I've done it. I did it in uh, Brussels in a hall with 1500 people just before Christmas. Basically, the idea is I invite people, I tell people we are going to attempt the first act of time travel in the history of that place. And they're very lucky to be there for this historic moment because it's never happened before. And then I invite them to close their eyes and I tell them we're going to travel forward 10 years in the future that I've brought my time machine along. And that when we get there, we are traveling forward to a future where it's not utopia, but everything that could possibly have been done during those 10 years was done. And it was a time of extraordinary social reorganization. It was a time of cascading positive change, which knocked onto each other and led to a a world where everything that could possibly have been done was done. And it's a world that, that has reached its targets of, of, of getting to be zero carbon and is thriving and wonderful as a result. And then I invite them to close their eyes and I tell them we're going to, uh, when we turn on the time machine, we're going to travel there and then there to spend two, two or three minutes just in their imagination walking around mm-hmm. and to imagine it with all their senses. So not just what they see, but also what does it sound like? What does it smell like? What do they hear? What does it feel like? And then if I'm in a small group, we do it by I just invite them to physically take a step forward. If we're in a big group, I invite everybody to hum together. And that's the sound of our time machine. And then I just leave them sitting for two or three minutes and the whole room is complete. You could hear a pin drop. And then at the end of it, I asked them to keep their eyes closed and turn to the person next to them who they didn't know before they came and to keep their eyes closed and to just 
tell the other person what they saw and what they what they felt and what the experience was. And for many people, it's a really profound experience because we don't do that very often. I did it one time and, and, and a woman said, I've just realized I've spent 20 years campaigning against climate change, but I've never stopped to do this. I've never stopped to imagine what the kind of world is that we could be creating instead. There's often tears. It's often quite a, a moving experience for people. I like to think that what it does is it helps people to create memories of the future it creates a kind of a new north star for people that allows them to think about the future in different ways uh, i think it should be a daily practice almost like a meditation practice that we do every day and in terms of what happens when i do it i tend to find myself walking down streets with no cars where the streets have been reclaimed for play and for food production the air smells fantastic i walk past uh, new businesses that started. I always say that one of them is a, a bakery that was started as part of the city's mental health strategy because they realized that baking was the new Prozac. I walk past things that used to be supermarkets, but that are now filled with other things. Lots of smaller businesses, community owned businesses. I walk through markets that are thriving and diverse and which reflect the amazing expansion and diversification of local food production around the city where I live. I live in an apartment that costs me nothing to heat, built with uh, straw bale walls, with composting toilets in the basement. And when I sit in my garden or when I walk around, the bird song is much, much louder than it was 10 years ago. And the biodiversity is much stronger than it used to be. And there isn't, you don't really very often see mown grass anymore. You see those places as being allowed to grow a bit more wild and much more space for biodiversity in nature. And I think the main feeling of it for me is a place where uh, levels of anxiety are way, way, way lower than they were. You know, in 2020, we were told we have a we live in the age of anxiety. We have an epidemic of anxiety. By 2030, because people work shorter hours, because we have a universal basic income, because we don't have to travel so far, because we eat better diets and we're more connected with people, and because education has profoundly changed. There's no more testing in education. Education has been repurposed to be focused on maximizing the imagination. We see much, much lower levels of anxiety, which has had ripple if knock-on effects across public health, physical health, mental health. Mm. I'm really just soaking this in and lingering on that vision you just shared. I feel like right now we're constantly bombarded by what is because it's in the news all the time. We're constantly learning about issues happening around the world. So we start to have a very clear idea of what we're against, but maybe not strong enough of an idea of what we do want and yearn for. So I'm wondering what you think the power in this type of visualization is in supporting the greater goal of ecological regeneration and social justice. I think the thing that worries me sometimes is that we, you know, this narrative that that collapse is inevitable is really prevalent. And this 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 argument that it's too late is really prevalent. And and the thing that worries me is that we, you know, when Martin Luther King went to Lincoln Memorial in 1963, he didn't say, I have a dream. But uh, do you know what? Actually, it's probably a bit late. Uh, and I don't think we can probably afford it. And we don't want to inconvenience any commuters. And I don't know what I was thinking, really. You know, actually, you have to have at the heart of a movement that is going to 
achieve its aims, a powerful, compelling narrative. You know, I guess you know, for me, I always feel like central to the work that I do, whether it's writing, filmmaking, uh, giving talks, whatever it is that I do, is, is, is attempting to cultivate longing in people for the kind of world that I just described, the kind of world that people always imagine when I do that exercise. You know, I've never done that exercise and people have said, yeah, I I dreamt that there was a much bigger shopping mall open <laughs> where I live and I had this great car uh, and a really amazing phone. You know, it's, that doesn't happen because what happens is we have an economy that is all about uh, pleasure, immediate short-term pleasure, some things that release dopamine, chocolate cake, uh, you know, things that are kind of quick bursts of dopamine, you can sell that to people, you can sell pleasure to people. And we know that when you have a, an economy that focuses on pleasure, which is short lived, you get more and more addiction, you get more and more depression emerging as a result of that. What that exercise does is it, is it kind of vaults over the top of that and is and gets you into contentment. People are thinking about how would I, what would make me happy? How would I be content? What's a future in which I would be content? And so you, 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 you bypass all that short-term pleasure stuff and get into what really makes people happy and what really makes people uh, feel kind of contented. And, and I always think it's like uh, we need to be able to have those dreams in front of us. It's like we throw a whirlpool in front of you that starts to draw you towards it. It's like a new North Star that we can constantly recalibrate uh, that we're heading towards that. I interviewed some people for the book, re-academics who came up with the, this term, uh, something called functional imagery training, where they work with people to imagine a change in their life they really want to have made, to imagine it in a multi-sensory way. And then what they find is that once people have that, it becomes their new North Star. And then actually they don't. It's incredibly successful and powerful in terms of getting people to change behavior. And we need something like that around these issues around climate. And when all of our narrative is about how awful it's going to be and how high the sea level rise is going to be and, and, and you know, how, how everything's about to collapse, that works to motivate some people. It doesn't work to motivate the majority of people, I think. And, and actually what gets people there is dreams. And I, I would say it's like, um, you know, when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, that wasn't Neil Armstrong's idea. That wasn't JFK's idea. You know, we'd been going to the moon for decades before then in songs and in stories and in comic books. Tintin went to the moon. Frank Sinatra went to the moon. Everybody. But by the time Neil Armstrong went to the moon, we'd been there hundreds of times in stories. And those stories had created a longing that made it inevitable that we would go. And we need to be doing exactly the same thing in terms of climate, in terms of a, a more resilient uh, society. So I guess that's the importance of looking at this, not just through an environmental lens, but also a cultural lens, right? Okay. So how can we actually embed these stories into our culture and the dominant narratives we tell? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and and, and the beauty of that is it's, it's not a left-wing thing. It's not a right-wing thing. You know, what, what, because when we do that, we get down to the things 
which are the things that we all care about. You know, we all care about living in a place where we can breathe and we can see the stars and we can see the sky and where we, we feel safe. You know, one of the things that, that, that I really came to recognize through doing this book is that, is that actually there is a real function of privilege around imagination. Have, living an imaginative life has a function of privilege. If your basic needs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs for food, for shelter, for safety, for, for whatever, aren't met, it's very, very hard to be imaginative. So, so I always argue, you know, we, we need to look at how do we enshrine the right to an imaginative life? How do we protect people? How, how do we recognize that actually government imposed austerity is an assault on the imagination at the very worst time in history to be doing anything to limit and impair our imagination? I interviewed a guy called Henry Giroux who talks about the Trump disimagination machine, which is a beautiful expression for you know how, how that kind of politics works in terms of speaking to our fears. And speaking to our kind of fear centers rather than speaking to our imagination and our, and our possibilities. So there's much hope that what you described doesn't have to simply be a pipe dream, because you've been working on what you call transition towns since 2006, beginning with the town Totnes in the UK. Can you now take us back to that time and share how you went from having this vision to starting to make it a reality? Yeah, so I I was kind of seized with this question of what's the role of communities in the climate crisis? What can we do where we are with what we have, with the people we have, not waiting for, with any expectation the government are going to do anything, uh, you know, recognizing that there are things we need to do ourselves, but those things aren't enough. You know, what are the things that we can do with what we have and the people that we have? And that was really the inquiry. And I started initially teaching an evening class and giving talks and 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 so on about these things. And then very quickly, their kind of interest built and people were really interested. What's what are you doing? How can we get involved? We did a big launch event and then it just kind of snowballed. You know, we what we we created a we call we, we always thought of it as a, a project support project was the term, which was something that we borrowed from somewhere else. And, and it's this idea that you create an organization whose role is to enable other people to do things. So you create a website, you create an email list, you create a bank account, you create charitable status, you create a newsletter, you create all the things that people need so they can just get on and focus on getting the projects done. They don't need to be doing all, all that other stuff. And that work really is called, yeah, Dragon Dreaming. That's where it comes from. John Croft's Dragon Dreaming. He has this concept of the project support project. So, so we we kind of took that and, and 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 ran with that. So we created this kind of enabling framework and a narrative, and we promoted that and invited people to step in and make projects happen. And as of now, there's been I mean, about sixty different projects that have come through Transition Town Totnes that have ranged from, you know, projects to do with food, about reimagining the town's food supply. We have a project called Transition Homes that's going to be building about 30 ecological homes in community ownership. A community energy company came out of it, all sorts of different projects, because we created that kind of enabling framework and that narrative that invited people to step in and, and make things happen. So by now, there are many transition towns across the globe. I'm wondering what are usually the commonalities between these transition towns, or what's, what sorts of things can there be no common guidelines for because they have to be context-dependent? I guess the thing that they have in common, uh, you know, one of the things you'll leave, your readers might like to have a look at is if they go to transitionnetwork.org, 
there's two things there one is something called transition near me where you can put in where you are in the world and it'll tell you what's already happening around where you live and then there's also a thing called the essential guide to doing transition which is a, a kind of a distillation of 11 or 12 years worth of insight and learning about uh, what works and how to get this started where you live and it's very accessible very readable with lots of experience in so that's uh, you know i guess i visit a lot of transition groups what they have in common is they they kind of have a commitment to paying as much time to how they do things as what they do you know process is really important it really matters that in the organizations that we create we aren't replicating the same kind of old paradigm culture stuff that we see in the world that we're trying to replace and, and which we're trying to get rid of. So there's a big commitment to running good meetings, to managing conflict well, to having good communications, to how things are set up. There's also a commitment to doing things that if, if a transition group after a year is still sat around pontificating, that's really not very good. And they also have a commitment often to trying to turn these ideas into new viable enterprises in a place. Sometimes they link in with the local government. Sometimes they operate uh, independent of local government. Sometimes they, they have a very kind of entrepreneurial side to what they do and they're trying to start loads of new businesses. Sometimes they're pretty steadfastly uh, driven by volunteers tiers uh we always tried to design it in such a way that the that the model was the same but you could take it and you could you could change it any to, to suit your place and i always remember one of my favorite moments about seven years ago was there was a transition group started in a favela in sao paulo in brazil and uh, in a really kind of uh, impoverished neighborhood, they were really so excited about transition. They did a big launch event that was called The Unleashing, and they asked if I would attend on Skype. And so here I am sitting at breakfast time in my kitchen in my house, watching this sort of celebration in this favela. And there are nuns and rappers and kind of indigenous guys with like face paint and feathers and and there and chickens running about and they're all so excited about the launching this transition group which then went on to create all kinds of amazing social enterprises and stuff so so it was it was distinct to that place that that particular event couldn't have happened anywhere else but it was also recognizably and distinctly transition so just to clarify is the idea and overarching goal to move towards that future that we envisioned and is the goal to move towards decarbonization so are there these shared goals that the transition towns are working towards together? Um, I think you probably nailed that quite well. Yeah, it's it's that they are about making the transition from oil dependency to local resilience. And they're doing that in a way that is that is specific to that place. So and, and because initially, at least they are driven by volunteers, they are they are able to do what there is passion and enthusiasm for. If you have people in your community who are really excited about the idea of creating a local currency and are really committed and dedicated to making that happen, then you'll have a local currency. If you, if you don't, then that's never going to happen. So often the initial place where passion goes into is food, is creating new food businesses, new food enterprises and stuff like that. And then it expands into other things. But you're, you're basically running with, with what people are passionate about. Well, we're at a time when a lot of people are waking up to how deep-rooted our social and environmental injustices are, and therefore, how much we need systemic change. And oftentimes when we think about how we can create systemic change, we look frustratingly at our most powerful political leaders who hold the power to create such systemic changes from the top down. Yep. I'm wondering if you think we focus 
maybe too much on national politics or primarily on that and just not enough on local community-based politics. And whether you think we might be able to shift the power structure in our society and create systemic change from the bottom up through building uh, resilience and transition towns. I think for me, the really important <clears throat> the really important point is we need all of it. You know, we are in a climate emergency. We need to be to have any chance of staying below one and a half degrees at this point. We need to be making cuts of seven, eight, nine percent a year starting now. Coronavirus and all the stuff that we've seen, the grounding of planes, the grounding of cars has led to about five and a half percent cuts. We need to be doing seven, eight percent every year. That's something that can't be entirely done by communities. It can't be entirely done by governments. It can't be entirely done by business. It needs to be coming from all of those places. So on the one hand, I think the the, the transition movement and the local economy movements, the new economy movements, the local food movements who are saying it needs to start here in this place with a reimagining of how this place works are absolutely right and are doing absolutely the right thing. At the same time, 350.org, uh, Rising Up and uh, Extinction Rebellion and these movements who are saying, this has to be, this has to start at the top. We need systemic change. We need governments to completely change, to declare a climate emergency, change what they're doing. They're also absolutely right. And the people who are working with businesses and big corporations trying to get them to change, the, the, the mayors, the more enlightened mayors in cities who are saying, no, it starts in this city and us doing different things, they're absolutely right too. This needs to be coming from everywhere and it needs to be coming with a far, far greater sense of urgency uh, than we see today. We always said the transition movement isn't enough on its own, but it's a really vital kind of neglected piece of the jigsaw puzzle. What runs through all of those layers, I would suggest one of the things is is the need for uh, creating a culture in which people can be can be more imaginative and that we need to create a culture where everybody feels empowered to to be coming up with the ideas and making them happen. I do feel like when people are talking about how we can create structural change, the focus mostly is on things like voting, being more engaged in politics, and these top-down approaches, which are really important, but then we can end up feeling helpless when we don't see immediate changes or if we don't feel like our political representatives are standing and fighting for the things that we would like for them to. So I'm personally really inspired by this transition movement because it lays out a path for what we can do as individuals and as communities from the bottom up in a more hands-on and micro scale. And maybe also this is more enjoyable and enriching to take this sort of approach as well. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I know a lot of people who are very active in Extinction Rebellion. My wife is very involved in Extinction Rebellion, and, and I think they're wonderful. What they've done has been just extraordinary in terms of getting climate change on the map. But that kind of very adversarial putting your body on the line sort of campaigning is so emotionally and psychically exhausting you know the people would come back from 10 days of doing that in london it would take them two months to recover and i think that thing of having doing a bit of that doing a bit of transition doing other things you know we need a balance of different stuff that we need i always say you know we need a big bold beautiful yes and a big bold beautiful no and actually the same people can be doing those things they're just putting different kind of hats uh, on and off while they're doing it and finally, what is your recommendation for our listener in terms of where they should spend more of their time and efforts to play their roles in helping to build our shared, desired, and inspiring future that we envision? 
I think it's a completely personal choice and it, and it's what you feel called to do. You know, this is a time where that calls us to do something. It's a time that calls us to make sacrifices. It's a time that, that invites us to step up and, and to do things and to do it in a way where we know there's no right way to do this stuff. No one's done this before. Uh, it's fine to get it wrong. It's fine to try things that don't work and then to learn from that and then to tweak it and then to try something else. What matters is that is, is that you find the bit that calls to you, whether it's starting a new project, whether it's getting involved in something that already exists, whether it's mentoring people. You know, this is a revolution that will require good lawyers. It's a really will require good people who are website designers. It doesn't it's not everybody has to be out doing one particular thing. Everybody has something to contribute to this. But this is a time when we can no longer imagine this is going to go away. This is this is the tiny little window of time that we have now of opportunity to stay below one and a half degrees, bearing in mind that the uh, potentially completely irreversible situation, if we go beyond that, you know, this is a time to, to, to think afresh and, and, and to, to see, to try and imagine what your role might be in it. The most, the best thing about it is that I have met thousands and thousands of people now who are involved in this kind of work, whether they've started new food businesses or community energy companies or whatever they're doing. No one has ever said, oh, I was so much happier before I got involved in all of this. No one has ever said I was doing all right until I learned how to grow lettuces and then it was downhill away from that point. You know, this is, there is, we are a social creature. We are a creature that likes to feel like we're doing something meaningful. We are living in an epidemic of loneliness and many people are feel increasingly isolated from each other. You know, reach out, find other people, get involved. You know, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in the power of, of optimism, not in a kind of giddy, everything will be lovely sort of kumbaya kind of a way, but in a sort of, in, in, in a kind of, uh, like I said at the beginning, you know, I grew up with punk and punk had this really powerful do-it-yourself attitude. If you don't like what's going on, then do it yourself. If you don't like the music, form a band. If you don't like the music industry, make your own record label. It's not that difficult. We'll tell you how to do it, you know. And that kind of culture I feel we need now. And in many ways, to be 18 now and with the opportunities now to for, where anything is possible would be exhilarating, I think. You know, if we can, if we can come at that with this sort of creative we can do anything sort of mentality. This is an extraordinary time to be alive, I think. Well, we are coming to a close. Uh, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Rob's work, you can head to www.robhopkins.net and be sure to also check out his book, From What Is to What If, at chelseagreen.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Rob in Transition on Instagram at Rob Hopkins 5085 and on Facebook at Rob Hopkins Author. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to learning more from you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Do stuff. Do 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 stuff. <laughs> you know, don't be an observer. Don't be a passenger. This is not a time to just sit back and hope that people in control know what they're doing, because at this stage, we know absolutely comprehensively they have no idea what they're doing. And the ideas that you come up with, the possibilities you come up with and the people around you come up with are already as good, if not infinitely better than those people, the ideas those people are come up, coming up with. So believe, believe in yourself, believe in what you're coming up with. Believe this is the most extraordinary time in history and, uh, and that anything is possible. 
You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com/support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well. So if you're able to join, starting from two dollars. Per month. Again, it's greendreamer.com/support. Today's song feature is "Yarrow" by Kim Anderson, and I also want to thank our audio engineer Scott Donnell and our post-production content manager Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath the trees is scattered. With the first start.